Now this message today is a message about discipling and how to help Christians to grow in their faith and how to help them follow Jesus more and more. Good morning, everyone. Now, this morning we're going to be studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. When I was living in the U.S., I remember driving one day with uh, one of my kids in the back. They were about two years old, and I had to stop quickly, uh, slammed on the brakes, and from the back seat I heard, Come on! Now, where did a two-year-old learn to yell, Come on! at other drivers like that? Well, they learned it from me. This, this two-year-old was imitating her father very well. Uh, parents help their kids to grow in maturity. Kids look to us as how to live life and how to uh, mature and to grow in this life, including how to react to bad drivers. I was very thankful that all I said was, come on, and that that's what she picked up on. Now, this message today is not uh, a message about how to raise kids, but it is a message about discipling and how to help Christians to grow in their faith and how to help them follow Jesus more and more. Our passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. And in this section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church about his love for them as a father loves a child. And he, he sets up for them an example of faithfulness and godliness and urges them to be like him, to imitate him, just as my daughter was imitating me, but in a better way, to imitate him in walking with Christ. So let's start by reading our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I to Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is God's Word. And I understand the main message, or the main point of this passage, is that discipleship is God's path for us to Christian maturity. Discipleship. We're going to look at two parts, two different aspects. We're going to look at some aspects of discipleship in verses 14 to 17, and then some aspects or characteristics of Christian maturity in verses 18 to 21. So the first part is some aspects of discipleship. We're going to look at three aspects of discipleship. This would be characteristics or parts of discipleship that we see in this passage in verses 14 to 17. Discipleship 
A very simple definition of discipleship is helping people follow Jesus. As Christians, we're called to disciple others, to help them to follow Jesus. And we're also called to be discipled by others, to submit to and allow others to help us follow Jesus. So let's look at these three aspects of discipleship from this passage. The first one is correction. Correction. Verse 14 says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, these things that Paul is talking about is what he said previous to this verse. He's probably referring to what came right before this, where he told the Corinthians that they are strong and they are held in honor, but Paul and the apostles are weak and disrespected. They're hungry and thirsty and poorly treated and buffeted and homeless and on and on. So Paul's referring to that, but he may also be referring to a larger section here, going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Corinthians. At that point, Paul starts addressing the issue of division within the church. He calls them out for being divided and picking leaders. And he says that this is based on their pride in worldly wisdom, not based on God's power or their love for Him. So regardless of the exact things that Paul is talking about here, we know, and Paul knows, that his words could have caused them to feel ashamed of themselves. But we see the second part of verse 14, that he's careful to point out that his goal is to admonish them, to correct them, not to shame them, but to correct them in a, as a father would love his children. The word admonish here means to discipline in a way that's meant to correct without being harsh or provoking to anger or bitterness. So the goal of Paul's loving correction that he's been, that he's been doing throughout the, the book so far is never to shame them, but is to help them. And the goal of all loving correction in discipleship is never to shame someone, but to help them to see their sin and invite them to repent. This is consistent with what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. He said, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. That's Paul's message in this passage here. But we do know from experience that correction hurts. Even if it's done in love, there's still some pain that comes along with correction. And Paul knows that his admonishment could be painful for them to hear. So that's why in this section, Paul shifts from being firm with them, of taking them to task about their divisions, to being compassionate, reaffirming his love for them by using this image of a father with his children. I think many of us here may have been disciplined poorly at times, maybe many times by our parents. It's likely that some here are still hurt, angry, bitter toward parents for the way that they have disciplined, maybe harshly or in anger. Maybe they've disciplined through shame or even abusively. But this type of harsh parenting is the opposite of Paul's desire here. He wants to correct them for their good, not because he's angry. Paul wants them to follow Jesus and to grow in their faith and increase in their Christian maturity. 
Paul's focus is about them. He's doing this correction for their sake, not for his. So as we disciple others, we should practice that same type of correction in love. Correction in love. And it's important that we get both of these parts of the application. Correction and love. The first is correction. Discipleship must include correction as we disciple people. We must be willing to have awkward and uncomfortable conversations with our brothers and sisters. We can't let the love part of this application be an escape for us for being honest. We still need to be honest. We still need to correct. We can't let loving people, we we can't actually love people if we remain silent about their sin. It's not loving or helpful to allow people to remain in sin and not have that awkward or uncomfortable conversation with them about it. But we need the second part as well. So we must correct, but we correct in love. We need to check our motivations for wanting to correct people. We see a good example of this in Matthew 18. Jesus talks about how to confront someone who's, who's wronged us. He says to go to someone who's wronged you and show him his fault. This is a a one-on-one basis, going and saying, Brother, I'm concerned for you in this area. I've noticed this thing that you might want to address. The whole confrontation, the whole conversation about it is for the purpose of loving this brother or sister, that they might see their sin and repent of it. So we want to correct in love. This is the first aspect of discipleship that we're going to look at. We need to enter into those awkward and uncomfortable conversations in order to correct and to correct in love. The second this morning is imitation. Imitation. We get this from verses 15 and 16. Which says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. That's where we get imitation. Paul starts out here by saying that they have countless guides, but not many fathers. Countless guides, other Bible translations say 10,000 guardians or 10,000 instructors. These guides or guardians or instructors have a certain role to play, but that role is not the same level of involvement as a father. I've been twice now to Xi'an to see the Terracotta Warriors. Both times, there was multiple very helpful people ready to guide us through the museum there. As we go through, they tell us, go here, look at this, take note of this thing, watch your step here, please buy some jade. They're, they're very helpful, but I really don't remember their name. Oh, they didn't come over for dinner afterward. When the tour was done, We knew more about the Terracotta Warriors than when we had started. But I wouldn't say that we had matured in any way as as a result of their guidance through that museum. Now contrast a tour guide with a good father. He lives his life with his family. He invests time, energy in raising his child. He not only guides, but he teaches and corrects and nurtures his children day by day over many years. And he does this so that the child can grow and mature. Key distinction between a guide and a father is that a a guide says, go that way. 
They point in a direction, go that way, where a father says, walk with me. Let's go together. So that's the key distinction between a guide and a father. The guide says, it's that way. You want to go this way. It's very helpful. We need guides in our life. But the father is different. They say, walk with me. Let's go together. Like Paul is saying in verse 16, imitate me. Walking with someone is what Paul means here by saying imitate me. Paul was the first one to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the people of Corinth. He's invested in them. He's not just saying, go there, go that way, but walk with me. That's why he's in this position as a father to them, a spiritual father to them. Just like a child imitates their parents in speech and actions, Paul is calling the Corinthians to imitate him in their faith. Now notice that imitation infers action. There's action involved here. Walking together is is moving. It's not standing still. He's not saying to them, think like me, but he's saying to them, live like me. There's a great book. It's blue. It's called Discipling. I recommend that you pick it up to read more about what it means to disciple and how to disciple. In that book, the author says that we don't only want to help people understand better. We do want to help people understand better, but we don't only want to help people understand better. We also want to help them live better. That's Paul's message here in wanting, in urging the Corinthians to imitate him. So as Christians, we should be living lives that are worth imitating. Paul is worth imitating. Now, Paul is worth imitating because he's imitating Christ. We too should imitate Christ in our life. There's a lot of imitation going on. We want to look, how did Paul live? How did Jesus live? And we want to imitate them. But ultimately, we want to imitate Christ as we live a life that's worth imitating. But not only should we live a life worth imitating, we want to invite others to walk with us. Again, in the discipling book, the author says, So much of discipling is doing what you ordinarily do, but bringing people along with you having, and having meaningful conversations like Jesus did. Looking at the life of Jesus, He walked around a lot and had conversations on the way. So we want to do that. We want to imitate that. So invite someone to join you maybe even on your commute to work. There's someone going the same path as you as they go to work. Can you ask them to join you and maybe pray together along the way? Or meet up with a fellow church member for lunch and ask them to share about how they became a believer. Find out about their walk with Jesus and ask them those questions. Maybe invite a single person over to dinner with your family during the week. It doesn't need to be fancy or special. Let them watch how you parent. Let them listen to how you put your kids to bed. All these normal things that we normally do. Invite others into your life to share that with you. Say, walk with me. It doesn't require perfection. It just requires a willingness to invite other people. So strive, work to live a life that's worth imitating. And then do that life. Live that life with other people. Invite them to walk with you. 
Now, so far, we've looked at two aspects of discipleship. Correction, imitation. And now the third one is recollection. Recollection. That's a fancy word for remembering or to remind. Recollection. Verse 17 says, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. So recollection comes from that word remind, to remind you. Paul continues to talk about his his call for them to imitate him. We see that Paul has sent Timothy to them with the, the mission, with the work of reminding them of Paul's ways. Timothy was another child in the faith of Paul's. Paul calls him a child of the, in the faith. And he's now been sent to the Corinth church to remind them of Paul's ways. So what types of things do you think Timothy would be reminding them of? Would he go around saying things like, yeah, Paul wouldn't do it that way. And stand off to the side and say, yeah, Paul would have prayed a little more before he started that. Or Paul used to always take care of this thing. Would he be saying, Paul, Paul, Paul? I don't think that's what Paul had in mind when he sent Timothy to remind them. Look there, there at verse 17 again with me. At the purpose, I sent Timothy to you. I sent you, Timothy, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Of my ways in Christ. It's important that he wants to remind them of his ways in Christ and that he's teaching them everywhere in every church. So these ways in Christ are the truths that Paul has received from God, that he's living out, and that he's teaching in the churches. It's very convenient, and what a blessing, that we have these teachings in our Bible today. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon. He wrote these books explaining, most of them addressed to churches, and talking to them about all these things, these truths of God that he wants to teach them. So we actually have his ways in Christ that Timothy would have been reminding them of. We have them written down. We have access to them. We should be reading them and understanding and learning, being reminded also of Paul's ways in Christ. Paul understood that discipleship was not about making miniature Pauls. He didn't want them to be miniature versions of him. The point in imitating him and reminding them of Paul's ways was that they would follow Jesus more closely, that, they would, that Jesus would increase in their lives. Paul would decrease, similar to what the, uh, John the Baptist spoke about Jesus, that he would increase and I would decrease. This is, we see this same attitude in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul was talking about it's not about the leader or the disciple maker, but it's about God. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5 says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants 
through whom you have believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The focus is on God. And that's why Paul is calling them to be reminded. He wants them to be reminded of his ways in Christ. I believe that Paul would have wanted them to be reminded of the centrality of the gospel. As we reread other writings of Paul, and even in 1 Corinthians, we know that his focus is on, the, is on Christ and Him crucified, is on the good news that God sent Jesus to save the world. That gospel message that Paul would have wanted them to be reminded of starts with a problem. That problem is sin. All people, when we break God's law, it's not just disobedience, but it's rebellion against God. And because of this sin, this rebellion, we're separated from God. We're spiritually dead. We are unable to do anything for ourselves. We cannot save ourselves or repair the relationship with God. The Bible says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So in light of our problem, God, who is rich in mercy, came to earth in the form of a man, that is Jesus. He lived a perfect life and died on the cross as the true and last sacrifice for sin. Then God raised Him from the dead. And now God offers to all people the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message that Paul wanted them to be reminded of and that we should be reminded of daily. If you're not a Christian and you're listening this morning, I urge you to repent and believe in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. If you're a Christian, don't tune out the message of the gospel thinking, I know this already. But remember how you used to be lost in sin, on the pathway to hell. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace, saved you. So as we disciple others, we want to employ this type of recollection. We want to remind each other of God's mercy and grace at the cross of Jesus. We do this by speaking specifically about the cross, by talking about the gospel like I just did. And we also do this by modeling Christ-like behavior in our lives. This might look like voluntarily submitting to authority that's in our lives, voluntarily submitting to authority that's over us, that God has put there, but maybe we don't like. Maybe we don't think that person is worth submitting to. But we model Christ-like behavior by submitting to them anyways. This might look like sacrificing time, money, career opportunities to serve our family or to serve God in His church. So we disciple with the recollection, the reminder of the gospel in word and in action. So these are the three aspects of discipleship that we see in this passage. Correction, imitation, and recollection. 
Now we want to look at three aspects of Christian maturity in verses 18 to 21. And maturity means to mature, is to grow up, develop into a full-grown, uh, into the full-grown position. A mature adult is someone who has grown up into a, a full adult. So Christian maturity is a, a developed place, growing up into being a Christian. And none of us ever reach a maximum of Christian maturity. We all have room to grow and to mature, no matter where we are at this point in our faith and in our walk with the Lord. Paul spoke specifically about maturity earlier in 1 Corinthians, where he said that he could only speak the words of God's wisdom to the spiritually mature, but he could not speak God's wisdom to the immature. Let's look again at verses 18 to 21. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So the first aspect of Christian maturity we see here is that Christian maturity requires humility. Christian maturity requires humility. Verse 18, he says, Some are arrogant. He calls out some of the audience here. Not all of them, but some of them are acting with immaturity. It's like he's saying, Speaking of children, some of you are acting very childish in your behavior. This childish behavior is arrogance. To be arrogant is to be puffed up. Sometimes the Bible says haughty. They're full of themselves. They think they don't need help from Paul. Arrogance is pride. It's the opposite of humility. Now these, these Corinthians who he's calling out here, this group, they're acting kind of like a teenager who still lives with his parents, but thinks he could live on his own. He doesn't really need his parents. He doesn't want them interfering with his life, but actually he's ignorant to the fact that to, he's ignorant to what it really takes to live in the world. He doesn't want help because he thinks he's big enough. That's how these Corinthians are acting. Now this is a lesson for us. We need to humble ourselves if we are going to experience real Christian maturity. Christian maturity requires humility. We need to give up on childish pride and submit to the discipleship that God brings to us. I think this is especially important for those of us who have grown up in church or if you've been in church for a long time. There's a point where you feel like, I know all the Bible stories, I know the worship songs, and even some of the hand motions. But the reality is we all still need to mature and need to grow. And just because we know a lot about the Bible or about Bible stories or have been in church for a long time, it doesn't equal maturity. Knowledge does not equal maturity. And so if, we've grown up, if you've grown up in the church like me, we, we have a, a very big temptation to be arrogant, to think that we don't need the help of someone else, that we have arrived. So be careful, brother and sister. Take an assessment of your heart. Do you feel like you know all that you need to know? Do you feel like you have maxed out on Christian maturity and there's no one here that could actually speak truth into your life? If you feel that way, then you may be arrogant. So be careful. We want to approach discipleship and being discipled with humbleness. So the first aspect of Christian maturity that we see here is 
that it requires humility. The second aspect of Christian maturity is that it's powered by God. Verse 19 says, But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Paul makes clear that as long as God approves, he is coming to Corinth. For him, it's not a matter of if, but when. He is coming. And when he comes, he aims to find out the power of these people who are arrogant. The use of power here points back to one of the most important verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God is compared to the wisdom of the world. And we see in verse 20, it, it makes me think that he's being a bit sarcastic here in wanting to find out their power. He already knows that they have no power to back their words. He knows they're acting with childlike ignorance and arrogance. That their, it's, their arrogance is based on immaturity, not on the power of God. So Paul's statements here reveal that the power for Christian maturity comes only from God. We cannot make ourselves mature. We cannot speak our way into maturity. Talking and reading is not what's going to get us into maturity. It's God's power. It only comes from His power and His work. We depend on Him to mature us. One commentator on this passage uh, said something like this, We may know good, but we still do evil. We may. Only God's power enables us to live like a true member of God's kingdom. It's only by God's power that we can live rightly before Him and that we can mature in our faith. So the application for this point is, that we should ask God to work in us to bring about mature by His power. That we would approach Him humbly and remind ourselves that we depend on Him, not on ourselves, not on other people. And we want to ask God to mature us by His power. And then watch to see what He does. So as we look at Christian maturity, we see that it starts with humility and then continues with dependence on God's power to change us. Lastly, Christian maturity is voluntary. The last aspect of Christian maturity is this. It's voluntary. Look at verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul asks them to decide how he will come to them. The rod here means more admonishment, more correction. It's the rod of discipline. The other option with love in a spirit of gentleness. This is like a parent who uh, gets pleasure by watching their child grow into maturity and start living in that maturity. There's joy and pleasure to, see, to, to be seen there by a parent. That's the comparison. So Paul has said he is coming, but their response to his letter or letters and their response to Timothy's reminders will determine in what fashion he comes, how he comes if it's with discipline or it's with loving gentleness. We need to be reminded that his, this discipline he's talking about, this rod, is, it's for their good. But he's calling them to grow up. He's calling them to, to live in the maturity that they should have. It, this reminds me of an old English proverb that says, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. 
a horse might have opportunity to drink water, drink the water that he needs, but he must respond by drinking that water. In a similar way, Paul is telling them, these immature Corinthians, that they have opportunity for maturity. They have the discipleship in place to be able to, to grow in maturity. They need to respond in that way. It's up to them to respond. It's their, they volunteer for this. So how do you respond? Do you feel like you're too wise or maybe too shy or too prideful to join a church or to open up to fellow church members or to submit to discipling? How do you respond to the offer of discipleship? We see here that maturity, Christian maturity, is voluntary. I don't mean that we choose when we mature or how much. What I mean is we choose not to, we can choose not to participate. We can be prideful and closed off to the opportunities of maturity, like a horse that has opportunity to drink but refuses to do so. So friends, volunteer to be discipled. One way to do this is not wait for someone to disciple you, but go ask. It's okay to ask someone, will you disciple me? An easier way to ease into it might be to ask someone, can we meet for coffee this week and talk about life? But you have a responsibility here. So start living as one who is mature. Choose the path of maturity. So this morning we have covered three aspects of discipleship. Correction, imitation, recollection, remembering. And we've covered three aspects of Christian maturity. That it requires humility. That it's by God's power and that it's voluntary. We have a responsibility to respond so let's take serious God's call to make disciples of all nations. And let's take the opportunities we have to be discipled. Remember the main point of this passage. Discipling is God's path for us to Christian maturity. Make sure you're on the path and help others along the way. Bye.